Um, the very first fist fight I ever got into um, was in like fourth grade. Uh, I was hanging out with a bunch of neighborhood kids, most of whom were older than I was, and I was the newcomer um, to the group, newly introduced into this society of boys uh, by a mutual friend, and I was completely out of my element. Um, these guys had a whole history and group culture um, and a way of speaking and doing things that I did not understand. And so for the most part, I was a participator. Um, I, uh, I was laying back, just quietly learning the ropes, um, just happy to be included, um, at least until this fistfight. Um, and here's how that happened. One day we're all hanging out doing whatever it is neighborhood boys do. And two of the older boys, probably sixth graders, um, so they were worldly wise, you know, um, those kids started telling mama jokes back and forth to each other. And uh, I had never heard a mama joke before, and I simply did not understand them at all. And so um, you have to understand <laughs> before I continue that I was clueless about most things. I was just one of those kids just kind of went, you know, one of those ADD kids that just kind of walked around in their own world all the time. Um, I've told some stories lately about how and Esther and I keep getting in these situations where we're clueless to, to stuff that everybody else knows. I'm starting to think I, that might be me. That was the problem. As this story came back to me, I was like, maybe I'm the one that's always clueless. Um, but one thing I know for sure, I completely understood what was happening with these jokes. For all I knew, Harold's mom really was so ugly they had to put T-bones around her neck to get the dogs to play with her. I, I thought it was rude to point it out, but I'd never seen her. So I had no reason, I had no reason to doubt the fact. And, and uh, when I learned that Darian's mom was so fat and stupid, she took a spoon to the Super Bowl. I'm over here thinking, man, I wonder how much cereal you could fit in a, in a stadium. And, and uh, you can hardly blame her for that decision. In other words, I was missing the point, completely missing the point. All of which was fine until one of the older boys turned to me and said something like, yeah, well, Chris's mom is so fat, she went to the zoo and they locked her up with the hippos. And while Darian is assuming I'm thinking of a zippy comeback, I'm actually analyzing the accuracy of that statement. And first, my mom is, wasn't fat. And for all I knew, she'd never been to the zoo without me. And the last time we went, we didn't even see hippos. And so, let alone with my mom incarcerated with them. So I, I have no idea what's going on. So while Darren's smiling, waiting for my comeback, I punched him square in the nose. And I, I, I didn't know much, but I did know that he was older than me, and I didn't want to let him get up, and so I jumped on him and just kept punching. And, and, uh, until he would apologize and take it back and tell me that my mom wasn't fat. And uh, so when Darius started screaming that he was sorry, and all the other boys were pulling me out, I immediately... Um, started explaining how my mom was not fat and he shouldn't say that. He doesn't even know my mom and she's never even seen a real hippo in, in her real life. And so I don't even know what you're talking about. And, uh, and needless to say, I was not accepted back into that group after that. So uh, I, was, I missed the point, which is a little bit what we're talking about today. The ladies' lectionary passage is about Jesus trashing the temple um, as though he was... Um, dealing with something that was clearly more important than a bad mama joke. Um, but I think I get it. And, uh, and this is the third week of Lent. We're looking this year at a bunch of stories um, that kind of capture moments in Jesus' lives that would have been Instagram-worthy if Jesus lived in the, in the Instagram era. And uh, we're, we covered hashtag beginnings, where we looked at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, as told by Mark, we talked about the importance, importance of marking 
beginnings, especially those, those moments when God kind of reveals himself in a new way and basically kind of rolls back the heavens where we can see that his kingdom is so near that we can just all but see it. And then last week, uh, still in Mark, we looked at the famous Mount of Transfiguration story, hashtag no filter. Um, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and he shines with glory. And Peter not only recognizes the kind of prophetic importance, the historical significance of this moment, but he's ready to park there forever. He, he dug in deep and was, and, and we realized that Peter, um, was confronted with the realization that Jesus was planning to give his life for this ministry and he didn't like that part. So he wanted to stay up here on the mountaintop where Jesus was glowing. Mount, shiny mountaintop Jesus beats cross Jesus any day in Peter's opinion. We wrapped up by deciding that Jesus wouldn't fit in any of our boxes, that we'd have to take him exactly as we find him. Mountaintop glowing Savior and suffering crucified Savior on the cross. Um, well, today we're going to see Jesus in a, rear, a rare fit of anger. Um, and we're titling this hashtag don't hold back. This is one of those hashtags people use when they are on a huge rant about politics or the way their neighbor is acting or uh, just the unsatisfying end to their favorite TV show. Um, basically, this hashtag you use when you're angry and you don't want to hold back. You want to let it all out. And many of us know this story. We're reading the account from John. Um, so we're in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, if you want to follow along in your own Bible. If not, the words will be on the screen. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple area. He saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip out of some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remember this prophecy from the scripture, Passion for my God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you this authority, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is the word of the Lord. Again, holy cow, there's a lot in this passage. We could preach an entire series on just this one passage, but we're going to hit a few high points. We talked last week about how Peter's instinct um, was to set up tabernacles uh, when he was on the mount to honor Jesus and Elijah rather than temples. Um, which would not have been normal in the first century. Temples would have been the normal thing to set up to honor something. Peter chose tents, which was a little bit weird, and it kind of uh, harkens back to the Old Testament a little bit. Part of this is because Peter was reaching back to these old prophecies, um, where the prophets foresaw a day when the temple would no longer serve its purpose. Um, It would no longer do what it was intended to do. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we talked about the temple um, and what it was supposed to be. It's supposed to be this place on earth where heaven and earth kind of overlapped um, a little bit, where the kingdom of heaven kind of overlapped with the kingdom of earth. And you could go there and commune with God. Um, In the garden, they were were fully overlapped. God could walk with man. And then when humans sinned, those those two realms were kind of pulled apart. and, And the temple was that place where they overlapped. 
And you could go and be with God and communion with God. So when Jesus says, my, house, my father's house will be a house of prayer, he didn't mean as a place where people just come and ask for their needs to be met. People come and just pray, God, do this for me, God, do that for me. He meant this is a place where you go to be with God, to commune with God, to spend time with God. This is where heaven and earth overlap. I don't want to rehash all of that. If you missed that message, it was actually Welcome to the Table Week 4, if you want to get on the website and or the YouTube channel and, and look back in the past. But we talked a lot about the way the temple became the place where, where humans could go and commune with God because heaven and earth overlapped in that place. And then how Jesus changed all that. Um, so go back and listen to that message if you want more. I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning. But what I actually want to start with is, is why the temple was in the condition it was in when Jesus showed up. Um, when Jesus was ready to defend God's honor. Why was the temple in such terrible shape? Um, and to do that, we got to go back to the Torah. Um, as Moses was establishing all of the sacrifices and offerings that would facilitate ancient Israel's relationship to God, he established the tithe. Everybody get real nervous. Now, this, this 10% of, of all of our increase that was supposed to go to the Lord. I'm picking up my breath a little bit. I'm scoot it down. That was supposed to go to the Lord. Um, and if you really want to go deeper into this, I, I unpacked it fully um, about a year ago in our In God We Trust series. Um, I promise if you take the time to listen to it, you'll be surprised by what you find. Um, but it's, it's In God We Trust, uh, I think week four. I can't remember. Week one, maybe. But um, we talk a lot about money in that one, so if you want to go back and listen to it, I'm, I'm tagging a lot of old sermons, but uh, we don't have time to rehash them, so I kind of have to. But I do want to go over this one piece from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, if you're following along. If not, I'll put it up here. You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all your crops for the harvest year. Bring the tithe to the designated place of worship, the place where the Lord God chooses for his name to be honored. So far, so good. We're all used to this, right? Everybody talks about this. We hear it all the time. This is what we're used to. Uh, it's actually the next line, the line I left out there, that, uh, that surprises everybody. It says, And eat it there in his presence. A lot of people aren't used to this. A lot of people don't realize that the Israelites ate their own tithe. It wasn't something they just came and donated. They actually enjoyed it themselves. The strictness wasn't on exactly on how much you give. It kind of was. Or, or who you gave it to. It was where you ate it. You were not allowed to eat your tithes just in your own backyard or in your own town. You had to travel to the temple, to the place where heaven and earth overlap, to that place where God was to eat your tithes. You had to travel back to Jerusalem where the temple was, the intersection of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. Then it says this, this applies to the tithe of your grains, your new wines, your olive oils, the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. Doing this will teach you to always fear the Lord your God. Now when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name to be honored, it might be too far for you to bring your tithe. If so, you may sell the tithe portion of your crops and herds, put the money in a pouch, go to the place where, the God, is, where God has chosen. So obviously, if you live 100 miles away and you have a great year, um, you might have wagons full of produce and livestock. And if you do, um, you, you most likely have a huge household as well because you took your servants and your children, you took everybody back to the festival to eat this tithe. And you don't get a huge harvest if you don't have a huge household to help bring it in. And so you're going to have a lot of people. You're going to have wagons full of stuff. And that may be too far to drag all of that stuff back to Jerusalem. 
So to make traveling easier, God puts in this addendum um, whereby you could sell your tithe, travel with nothing but a money pouch. And then when you get to the place where God's presence is, you can spend that money buying supplies to have this huge feast before the, uh, the Lord your God. In fact, it explains it completely in the next verse, which is incidentally why I don't think a lot of preachers preach from this passage. It says, when you arrive, you may use your money to buy any kind of food you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, or other alcoholic drinks. <laughs> I think it makes preachers nervous to imagine using your tithe to buy beer. That's what I think. Um, but And it also says, Then feast there in the presence of the Lord your God, and celebrate with your household, and don't neglect the Levites in your town, for they will receive no allotment of land among you. So they won't have a tithe because they don't have land to harvest from, so you can't leave them out. You have to invite them. Which means, if you do... Um, Use your tithe money to buy beer. You have to invite me. That's the it's right there in the Bible. Um, So uh, I don't know if you remember, but several weeks ago, I showed the picture of the path up to Jerusalem. And it's this grueling um, hill because they put Jerusalem on a on a hill. And the psalmist wrote these marching songs to help drive people. You know, I, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? That's called a song of ascent. It's one of the songs that they, they would chant as they were walking up this long hill to drive them up to Jerusalem. So obviously when God gave this, uh, this uh, addendum in the Old Testament, he doesn't know that they're going to, at that point, Jerusalem wasn't even a Jewish city. It was a city, a Canaanite city called Jebus. And uh, so he doesn't know, I mean, he knows, but he didn't, uh, it, the, the denim was, was so that they wouldn't have to drag all of this stuff up this long hill to Jerusalem. So by the time Jesus comes around, um, the, almost everybody, almost everybody sold their tithe in their hometown, brought their money and bought their feasting um, stuff in Jerusalem. So they all spent their money um, buying their sacrifices, buying their animals and their beer and throwing a big party in Jerusalem. So obviously this created a huge marketplace atmosphere in Jerusalem at festival time. It, it actually built into their economy some. Uh, I mean, I mean, think about it from a free, free market capitalism perspective. You know, people are coming to the city with a bag full of money that God told them they have to spend. They have to spend all of it. And so you don't even have to convince them to spend their money. You just got to convince them to spend their money on you. And so everybody drug animals in to be sold for sacrifices. And it created... Um, this uh, this kind of marketplace atmosphere at, at festival time um, and mix that with the fact that um, a, a great deal of the nation way back when the nation was taken captivity by Babylon and, and Assyria, a lot of Jews scattered. They, they went all over um, the Middle East and even up into Europe some. Um, all over the Roman Empire. In fact, Paul, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament, was a diaspora. We call them diaspora Jews. They were dispersed um, among among that area. Paul was a diaspora Jew. He was from Tarsus, which was a Roman city. Paul wasn't from Israel. He was a diaspora Jew. And so at festival time, all those Jews from all over the Roman Empire would come back to Jerusalem to festival and worship God and and and, and feast on their tithes. And so they're carrying all kinds of money. They're carrying money from different places and different, uh, different, uh, uh, conversion, conversions and stuff. And so of course there's money changers tables where they would take your, your Roman money or your gold from, you know, from Egypt or whatever. And they would, they would, uh, turn it into something you could use in the temple. Uh, they call them temple, uh, coins. 
And so this means that all this commerce has to come from all over the place, um, and, it, and it has to be changed somewhere at a fair conversion rate. And here's why I bring that up. We have a tendency to read this passage about the temple um, with, and picture this kind of madhouse where, where um, everybody's just, you know, only there to make money and, and they're completely abandoning God and God's rules and, and Jesus comes in to clean things up. But the reality is when Deuteronomy was written, um, Jerusalem didn't even exist. We talked about that. And, and this kind of had to happen in order to... Um, in order to uh, fit this addendum that was written clear back in Deuteronomy into a modern context. So these people were taking something that was written a long time ago and bringing it into their current modern context. And they would probably would have said things like, yeah, but that was written so long ago. How does that fit today? You guys ever heard that before? How do, how do we, like, this doesn't even fit us. This was written, man, a thousand years ago. Like, how do we, 1500 years ago, like, how do we, how do we apply that today? And what they were doing was they were applying it to their day. They were saying, you know, no way is anybody going to drag their tithe all the way up this hill. We have to change it. We have to sell things. This has to be done in order for us to worship God. In other words, I think we have a tendency to automatically put ourselves on Jesus' side of the story. Rather than wonder, what might he overturn if he walked into our lives today? What might he come in where we're going, yeah, but you have to do this stuff nowadays. This is just how it works nowadays. This is just what you have to do in order to worship God nowadays. What if we put ourselves on the other side of that story and said, if Jesus came in here today, where would he flip tables? What would he change? What would he dig into? Because if I'm honest, I don't think um, I would have seen anything in the temple that day that would have surprised me, that would have offended me. Most likely, we would have justified everything going on. We would have said, well, the, this, this obeys Torah. All the animals and money and the marketplace atmosphere was for the purpose of worshiping the way God outlined we should. Remember that all these people were the ones that tithed on their herb garden. Like they went out to the herb garden, you know, to pick some thyme for their soup. And they took, you know, ten, ten thyme leaves. And then they took one and put it in the tithe thing and put the other nine in their soup. Like these guys, these guys didn't do anything. Like this is the ones that Jesus was picking on for being. These guys are not just throwing caution to the wind and doing whatever they want in the temple that day. I guarantee they were ready to quote chapter and verse for why they were there. Which is where the problem comes in, I believe. And it's a really common thing that Jesus did to get frustrated in these types of situations. When Jesus talks to to a group of Pharisees about that tithing habit, they're tithing on their cilantro. He basically says, okay, fine, yes, the tithe is biblical. And yes, you're supposed to obey the Bible. But holy cow, did you miss the point? You forgot things like mercy and justice. You see the same thing when he wants to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And they're like, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's, that's work. And he's like, wait, what? Does that make any sense at all to, to not do good on the Sabbath? Like, God created the Sabbath for human beings, and I want to do something for a human being on the Sabbath? And you're telling me that doesn't work? Holy cow, how could you miss the point so bad? He does it when they ask him about fasting. They're like, why do, your, why do your disciples not fast like everybody else does? And he's like, because they're with the, the bridegroom. They're with the Messiah. Why would you fast when you're, it's party time. That's like waiting for Christmas dinner to go, I'm going to fast today. 
That doesn't make any sense. It's feast time. Basically, what Jesus found everywhere he went was that they were perfectly obeying the rules and completely missing the point. So when Jesus walks into the temple, knowing full well what the scripture says about selling your tithe so you could buy it back in Jerusalem, he sees this chaos and this hustle and this stress and a bunch of people going to such lengths to do it just right that they are completely missing the point. That this temple is where you go to be with God. This is where heaven and earth collide. You can walk with God in the cool of the evening the way Adam did in the garden. The way we were created to do. Jesus knows the rules and he knows they're operating, strictly speaking, within the rules. And yet he basically screams out, this is not what this space was for. You've completely missed the point. We tend to read this passage and and we see the Israelites ignoring rules and Jesus focusing so hard on the rules that his father's house was to be a house of prayer that he drives them out. As if the thing that bothers Jesus is rule breaking. You're ignoring something. You're not doing what God told you to do. I think it's the opposite. I believe Jesus was angry that the Jewish leaders had let the rules completely overshadow the true meaning of the place. As if he was saying, you're working so hard to do it just right that you're missing what's important. Everything that's important. Anyone else feel that way about Christmas? Do you ever feel that way about Christmas? Like, even though you get caught up in the hustle bustle and you, you love celebrating Jesus and, and getting presents, that sometimes we celebrate Jesus so hard that we miss the point. We kind of miss Jesus because we're working so hard to celebrate Jesus. I'm kind of a Grinch, though. I never know if everybody else feels that or that's just me. I mean, think about it. Every single time that Jesus gets mad at the Pharisees, it's because they are doing things so right. But they're doing them in a way that completely misses the point of what it was all about. That's what's happening in the temple this day. And Jesus does some house cleaning, and he's furious that they so completely missed the point. But all that doesn't explain why Jesus was so upset. And it doesn't really explain the purpose of this story here. And I think that purpose of the story is kind of what's most important today. And I don't think we want to miss that point. And in order to capture that, we have to look at the structure of uh, this entire chapter in John. Um, And this is actually a highly controversial chapter because of the way that John structures it. It sounds like Jesus goes straight from the wedding in Cana to the temple. Um, the wedding in Cana where he changed water to wine. It sounds like he goes straight from there to the temple, um, which would place this episode at the very beginning of Jesus' life. The problem is all three of the other Gospels, what we call the synoptic Gospels, put this episode at the end of Jesus' life. And so there's a lot of controversy. Is, did Jesus do it twice? Did John get it out of order? Did the other ones get it out of order? Like, when did this happen? Um, and a lot of theologians, you know, write whole books on why this is in chapter 2. And if you don't know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call them synoptic because they kind of go through Jesus' life in order. John jumps all over the place. Uh, John is not put together in chronological order. John is a non-synoptic gospel. 
because he doesn't follow any timeline as he tells the stories. He just kind of grabs stories the way we would tell stories. You know, you kind of tell a story. Oh, and then before that, you know, we we jump around all the time when we tell stories. John's telling a story a lot like that. He's not really being a reporter. He's just telling his story of Jesus. John tells the stories in his own structure, and there's some cool. When you get in the structure of John, there's some really cool stuff. But we would spend forever if we got if we went down that road. Um, but all this begs the question: Why would John take an event from the end of Jesus' life and place it at the beginning of his story about Jesus? And I think that answer lays in one little Greek word: the word "k." I've been spending a lot of time in the Greek, and I don't know why. Um, "K" is the Greek word for "and," and used all the time uh, in the in the New Testament for the word "and." And unless you read an old King James Bible, anybody got an old King James Bible on them? Nobody. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. No. <laughs> unless you read an old King James Bible, you know, with all the Shakespearean language, your your Bible probably doesn't use this word. If you open up John two and you look at uh, and you look at the very first verse, um, verse thirteen, it's not going to have the word and, and I don't know why. Um, most of the um, but the Greek Bible, if you read it in Greek. Um, which I don't read it in Greek, but I have a friend who does, and it's creepy. Um, uh, the oldest text we have, start this passage with the word K, the word and. It reads like this in the, in, the, in the King James. And the Jewish Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And, and some argue that the Greek would read, and when the Jewish Passover was at hand. Like that it's so it's not necessarily a timeline word. It's just a linking word. This is a conjunction. And according to Schoolhouse Rock, conjunction, junction, what's your function? Anybody? Come on. Yeah. A conjunction joins two otherwise independent things like bacon and eggs, Chris and Esther, coffee and heaven. So for this passage to begin with and and it makes us wonder what John is trying to join this passage to, especially if it doesn't seem that his choice of word is, is simply because this story happened next. Because as far as we know, this story didn't happen next. This story happened at the end of Jesus' life. So if John is intentionally taking a story from the end of Jesus' life and placing it here in the second chapter of his book, and he chooses a conjunction to join it to something, it leaves us with a couple questions. Why is this story told out of order? And what is John linking this story to with this word K, with this word and? So let's take a look at that. This is what happens just before that. So if you read the word and, you know what comes something and this story. And here's how it reads. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, totally ignored what Jesus said. I love that. Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing what, where it had come from, 
though of course the servants knew. He called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And the disciples believed him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days and his mother's brothers or with his mother, brothers and his disciples. So this is the famous story of Jesus turning water into wine. And John is the only gospel writer to record this miracle. And wow, is it a weird one? Um, this wedding reception, the host runs out of wine. Um, and there's a bunch of really great cultural history, if you ever want to read it, um, about how huge of a deal this was at this time um, and how much of your, your real social standing could be affected by an event like this. You, um, if, if you were to invite more people than you could afford to entertain, um, it, it bore heavily on your rep- reputation in the community. Uh, so take my word for it. This is a really big deal to these people. Um, but... Seriously, on an eternal scale, how big of a deal is this? I mean, what, what eternal difference could really happen um, by helping out this one wedding party? I mean, the, the wine taster even points out um, that the party was pretty well drunk at this point. You know, they've, they've had quite a bit. So the host didn't miss by much. He's like, man, usually by the time everybody's had this much to drink, they bring out the, the cheap stuff. They bring out the, the box wine, you know. Um, I'm not knocking box wine, by the way. But usually by now, they, you know, they bring out the cheap stuff. And, and, and you save this great wine for last. I mean, Jesus even seems to directly state that there's this, this event does not have much bearing on his story. It, he says, the, the wine supplies run out. Dear woman, this is not our problem. My time has not yet come. This has nothing to do with, with the, the, the eternal Jesus story. So if it's, if it's not really part, if it's not on Jesus' eternal radar, and it's not really his time yet, why on earth do this weird miracle? And why on earth does John feel like this is one of the ones he needs to tell? This is one of the ones worth recording. I mean, Matthew um, memorializes 20 of Jesus' miracles. Mark records 18, Luke 21. John tells about eight miracles. Only eight. So these are obviously very specifically selected. And for some reason he picks this one. Eight total miracles in the book of John, and one of them is providing high-quality wine to a party that had already worked through the host's entire stash. It makes us wonder why. Now believe me, if, if our kids are in the room, I'd be digging into this thing that even Jesus obeyed his mom. Like... So if moms, if you need to do some Bible thumping, go here, like lean in, lean in right here. Like this is the place where like Jesus said, no, mom said, do it. And Jesus did it. So that like, that's what you need right there. That's your verse. But why on earth did John feel like this story needed to be told? And I think it's because of this little Greek word, K, and. Because if this is a conjunction joining these two stories, the, the, the wedding and the temple, then what is John telling us about Jesus in these two stories? I submit that John is telling us that this Jesus that we follow is both the Jesus who saves a family from embarrassment and he's the same Jesus who cares so much about the purity of his father's house that he'll defend his holiness violently. I mean, think about this Jesus uh, from the perspective of, of how we tend to divide our lives. 
into sacred and secular. Our church life and our real life. And back-to-back stories were, uh, that are joined with this awesome conjunction. John tells us about a Jesus at a party that probably would have made us uncomfortable, if I'm honest. Most of us Christians probably would have been uncomfortable at a first century wedding party. They were, they were pretty lavish affairs and a lot of drinking. I mean, all, all history books say that a wedding party was a feast. It was a big deal. I mean, there's a chance that the host just, just did a poor job of estimating the wine, but that would have been very unlikely. Chances are the guests were a little more thirsty than everybody counted on, and the wine didn't vanished. So let's put it plain. Everybody was probably drunk. Everybody was probably drunk. Things were probably a little rambunctious. How many of us, when we picture Jesus, do we picture him at a party like that? Where everybody had consumed a little more wine than the host would have expected. That's the Jesus that John describes. And Jesus is such a purist. Such a legalist, if you want the word. That he would tear through the temple screaming, you've missed the point. And in so doing, you've defiled my father's house. I mean, what would Jesus do? What would that Jesus do in in, in America where we have a $438 billion, billion dollar industry selling Bibles and Christian books and T-shirts and music and bumper stickers and almost anything you can stick an ichthus on? What would Jesus do there? Would Jesus rip through our world and scream, you're completely missing the point. This is not what my story was about. One, Jesus makes us uncomfortable because he's a little too loose. And the other one makes us uncomfortable because he's a little too tight. I think this is John's point exactly. I think if you were to really condense... This version of John, this chapter 2 of John, it would go, Jesus cares about your wedding party, and he, compares about, he cares about the purity of your heart, your temple. Jesus is so engaged in your everyday life, he cares about the things that bother you. Even your reputation and trivial things. If they bother you, they bother him. He's concerned about that. And... He wants your heart, all of your heart. He's constantly calling you higher and deeper to more love, more purity, more holiness. Don't we have a tendency to gravitate to one or the other? Some of us see Jesus as like vending machine God, right? He's the one we ask for stuff. We order miracles like he's Amazon. Heal my sickness, find me a job, comfort my heart, save my reputation, make me some wine. Others of us make Jesus this like religious sage, like he's the one with deep wisdom to contemplate. He's the holy one we aspire to be like. He's the theological conundrum we want to figure out. He's the one who is constantly revealing our sins and weaknesses and challenging us to draw closer to God. I think John would say Jesus is both. That's exactly who he is. He's intimately interested in the minute details of your daily life. And he's God. Therefore, intimately invested in your holiness. He provides wine for a party 
And he goes to the holiest place in town and says, this is not holy enough. He's both. Last week we talked about how Jesus was both the glorified Jesus on the mountaintop and the crucified Jesus in the valley. He's no different when you're in heaven ready to pitch a tent and stay forever than he is when you're in hell screaming for help. This week's passage is weirdly similar, except this Jesus is the same whether you are changing diapers on Tuesday and when you're singing with your hands lifted up on Sunday morning. Jesus is all ears and interested when you pray for things that seem selfish to you, but you really, really want them in your heart. They really matter to you. He wants to be a part of that. And he's the one tearing through the temple of your heart, challenging you to do better. He's the God who comforts you in your loss, and he's the one who kicks your ass. My wife asked me not to use that word, but I decided to. And tells you to be grateful. Sorry, Judy. what you have and think about the less fortunate sometimes we do that we, when we want something we're like yeah but but man think about the people who have it so much worse than me Jesus is like no if this is important to you it's important to me my goodness I provided wine for a party so somebody wouldn't lose their reputation I, I care about the things you care about but he's also the one who's going to come in flipping tables and go, you have got to do better. You've got to bless more. You've got to love more. You've got to help more. You've got to do better. It's wrong to make Jesus a, a, a religious figure whose only real concern is your eternal soul and has no interest in the real day-to-day events of your life. And it's equally wrong to make him this cuddly, comfortable buddy who accepts you exactly as you are and never wants you to change. I can promise you that Jesus wants to be part of every crazy little detail of your life. If you're throwing a party and you're nervous, it's not going to go well, and you really want everyone to be blown away by your party and it's really important to you, talk to Jesus about it. He cares about that. Don't do the thing where you go, oh, that's silly, that doesn't really matter to God. Nonsense. cares. He really does. He wants to be involved in those intimate details of your life. But, my favorite word, that same Jesus who cares about the things just because you care about them is also the one who will drive you. He will flat storm through the temple of your heart and flip tables and crack whips. He will never stop picking on you. He will never stop challenging you to be a better person. He will never stop convicting you when you mess up. I think John grabs two stories that are opposite. And they're from two different times, but he wants to tell them together because that matters. And we would remember that Jesus is this guy and he's this guy. Don't gravitate to one or the other. He's both. He's the one who loves you and cares about you and cares about the things you care about. And he's the one who is saying, you can do better than that. Get up today because I know you can do better than that. So how do we respond to this? Um, Three times in my adult life I've gone to bed with a problem 
And, uh, and in my sleep, I've had a dream on how to fix it. It's happened three times. The first, um, Esther and I were newly married, and we didn't have two nickels to rub together. We were poor. And I locked my, my keys in my car. We couldn't afford a locksmith, and I tried everything I could think of to get this thing open. So my plan when I went to bed was to break out the little rear triangle window in the back, just break it out, unlock the car, and do that plastic over the window thing that you do. Because I couldn't miss work. Esther and I prayed before bed, God, please help me figure something out. And in my sleep, I dreamed of this goofy Renaissance Fair sword that I'd bought in high school that had been in a crate and it moved from like location to location, forgot. I even had the thing. And in my dream, I went upstairs in the attic, found that sword, came down, slid the sword in the door of the car, popped the lock, and it was, and it, and it, it was unlocked. So I woke up, ran in the attic, the sword was right where it was in my dream. And I went outside, it worked perfectly. Popped the lock, everything was great. Just like in my dream. The next time it happened, I couldn't figure out how to put a dishwasher in our house in KCK. Went to, went to sleep frustrated. We prayed about it. Woke up. I knew exactly how to put it in. And it went exactly like it did in my dream. Now, you could argue that both of these were just my subconscious um, giving me the answer. Like, I, I'm sure somewhere deep in my mind, I knew where that sword was. And I knew I needed something like that to open the car. Or, or you could argue that at some level, I really knew how to put the dishwasher in. I just couldn't figure it out. And I needed this dream to... Or if you're cynical, um, you could go that route. Third one was weird. I blew a metal brake line in our big white van, and, and I thought I was going to have to replace the whole metal brake line, which just weaves in and out of everything underneath this van. I'd gotten under there and looked at it and just got sick. I knew I couldn't do it. Called a mechanic friend, asked him how much that would be. He told me. I threw up. And then uh, uh, we didn't have the money for that. We didn't have the money for on Amazon that I did not know existed. Um, and as I'm looking on it, on the screen, in my dream, it's on a yellow background, angled from left to right, laying on a yellow background on this picture on Amazon. Um, and I can see the name of what it was above it. I woke up, kind of squinting, bleary-eyed, rolled over, got my phone, opened the Amazon app, searched for the part, and I'll be darned, it was on a yellow background, angled left to right, exactly like it was in my dream. Uh, and I got up and spliced the rotten chunk of this brake line. Everything worked great. And honestly, that morning that I opened it up, I, I said a cuss word and put my phone down. Um, Esther was like, what's wrong? Because I usually don't cuss that early in the morning. But um, so she thought it was something serious. And I was like, God just showed me how to fix my brake lines. And, uh, and the reason I was frustrated, because it makes me uncomfortable to think that God cares about my brake lines. Like it, I feel like it's a misallocation of divine resources. Like with all the problems in the world, why are you worried about my brake lines? Like to me, Jesus was a religious, moral, social warrior concerned with the eternal destiny of the human soul and the plight of the downtrodden. I don't know what to do with a Jesus that cares about my brake lines and my dishwasher. John would have reminded me that Jesus once turned water to wine so a family didn't lose face in in his friend group. But I also know every time I'd start to grow complacent, or I start feeling like I'm all that, Jesus shows up in my heart with a whip and wrecks the place. 
John would have smiled and said, yeah, that, that also fits. But the way I would love to respond to this, this story is to invite you to let Jesus in. Let him into the details of your life. Let Jesus into the stuff that scares you and, and the stuff you're excited about and the stuff that you might think is too silly to talk to him about. And just, and just bring that stuff to Jesus. Invite him in to be a part of all of that. But also let him into the temple. This is Lent. This is not supposed to be comfortable. Drop your defenses and your justifications and let Jesus gut the place. Pray this Lent season like David did. Search my heart, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path to eternal life. I challenge you this week. I challenged last week to start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this Lent season. Pretty easy reads. It's the story of Jesus four times by four different vantage points, four different people telling the same story. Read through that this Lent season. And as you do, when Jesus says something that stings, don't skip over that. Own it. Let it challenge you to do better. Let it change you to be more like Jesus. Invite him in to tear things up a little bit. Above all, stop defending your holiness. When you read this temple story, don't put yourself on Jesus' side. Put yourself on the other side and say, what would Jesus overturn if he came into my temple? What tables would he flip? What would he swing the whip at? What would he drive out? The temple leaders asked him, who do you think you are? Where are you coming from acting like this? We get way too close to that line when we start defending our behavior to God. We have to let Jesus convict our hearts. So my invitation is, is to let Jesus in. Let Jesus into all the parts of your life. I titled this message, Hashtag Don't Hold Back. And yes, that's referring to a hashtag that Jesus might have used if he was posting this story about him trashing the temple. But it also speaks to us. Jesus doesn't want us to hold anything back from him. He wants to be part of all of it. I used to say all the time, and I'd actually forgotten that I used to say it. popped in my head as I was writing this message. But I used to say, if you want to know if you have any business doing something, ask Jesus to do it with you. If, if, if you like having a beer or a glass of wine, but you're always embarrassed to tell your church friends about it, and, and you kind of don't really think about Jesus in that moment, then maybe you, you shouldn't do that. If it's something that you do and, 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 and you do it in the presence of God and you, and, and you feel like it's, it's part of your relationship with God and you talk about Jesus when you're doing it, then I, then I don't see a problem with that. If you watch TV shows and, and that's your, like, your fun little escape from Jesus, then that's probably not a good show for you. But if it's something that you laugh and you, and you praise God for humor and, it, and it, it hits all your buttons and, and you don't hide from Jesus when you do it, then it's probably okay. That goes for the jokes we tell and, and everything else. Jesus wants to be part of everything you do. If you want a good metric for how you should live, that's it. Just take Jesus with you everywhere. And if there's that part of you that, that feels like, well, this isn't something that I would do with Jesus, then don't do it. He wants to do life with you. Period. Because that's the point was furious when he walked in the temple because in their efforts to be good Jews, 
They were missing the point. The temple was the place to be with God. That was the whole point. Man, come here to be with God. You're so, you're so caught up in doing it exactly right, you're, you're missing the point. We can do the same thing in our efforts to do everything just right. We can forget that it's about living life with Jesus. Having a glass of wine with a friend or whether you're singing holy, holy, holy with your hands in the air. The point is to do it with Jesus. So as you go to the table this morning, I'd like to do an experiment. We don't usually think about it this way because we're Protestants, but play along. A few denominations consider Jesus to be physically present in the communion elements. Incidentally, in case you want to know, that's why Lent is a 40-day fast, but there's 46 days between Ash Wednesday and, and Easter. And the reason they don't fast on Sundays is because they consider themselves to be with Jesus because Jesus is present in the elements for a church service. And you would never fast while with the bridegroom. And so when you come to be with Jesus, you don't fast. So they don't fast on Sundays, some of the more traditional um, denominations, uh, because they're with the bridegroom in the form of the Eucharist. And so they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't fast on that. So it makes a 40-day fast if you take out the Sundays, like Jesus' 40-day fast in the women. Anyway, that's for free. Um, but this morning, just for your imagination's sake, Imagine as you take communion that, that you are basically taking Jesus on board for the day, for the week. And, and just, just try that. And, and try to be, be cognizant of that for as long as you can. I'm in the presence of Jesus. I, I'm with Jesus. And everything you do and everything you say and every, everywhere you go and, and the way you talk to people and the way you interact... The way you treat your kids, be intimately aware that his presence is, is there with you and doing it too. When you get angry, when you're letting your hair down having a little bit of fun, when you're working hard and trying to be successful, when you're just trying to hang on and get through the day. Jesus is right there and wants to be a part of it.